0: I think what we need to do is explain how our principles of free speech, free inquiry, will help serve the cause of justice. The First Amendment, the constitutional
1: freedom of speech and freedom of conscience that is the bulwark of our democracy. There was a passion in what was being said, affirming this, this what people considered a sacred constitutional right freedom of speech and freedom of association.
2: From the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, this is Speech Matters, a podcast about expression, engagement, and democratic learning in higher education. I'm Michelle Deutschman, the Center's Executive Director and your host. It's February, which means it's Black History Month, created to focus attention on the contributions by African-Americans to the United States. Officially recognized in 1976 by President Gerald Ford, every American president since then has designated this month as Black History Month and endorsed a specific theme. This year's theme is Black Resistance. In an article discussing Black History Month last year, The Washington Post remarked the quote, It's not just Black History Month that's endangered, it's Black history itself, close quote. One year on, the teaching of Black history has become increasingly politicized as the past month has seen continued attacks on a proposed advanced placement African-American studies course and diversity, equity, and inclusion education more generally. Today's guests are both thought leaders tackling issues of race, history, democracy, and how they impact the rising generation of young leaders. Ellis Kos is the founder of the Renewing American Democracy Project and an author of more than a dozen books, with his latest being Race and Reckoning, From Founding Fathers to Today's Disruptors. He's also a journalist who chaired the New York Daily News editorial page, was a columnist for Newsweek Magazine, and served as the inaugural writer in residence for the ACLU. Dr. Terry Platt is an Associate Professor of Public Administration and the Director of the Isabella T. Jenkins Honors Program at Clark Atlanta University. Dr. Platt actively supports student voter and civic engagement through partnerships and collaboration with the Andrew Goodman Foundation, All in Democracy Challenge, and as a member of the advisory board for the Students Learn, Students Vote Coalition. Before we talk with Alice and Terry, however, let's turn to class notes, a look at what's making headlines. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis continues to appear above the fold. In response to the leaked framework of the College Board's new AP course on African-American studies, DeSantis threatened to ban the teaching of the class. Although the College Board argues otherwise, DeSantis' critiques and that of other conservatives may have played a role in changes to the course material when it was officially released on February 1st. Critical race theory was removed from the course and Black Lives Matter and other contemporary topics were made optional. Just days after his condemnation of the new AP class, DeSantis stood behind a podium flanked by a large banner reading higher education reform and introduced a sweeping proposal to revamp the state's higher education system. If passed, the legislation would eliminate what DeSantis calls ideological conformity, would mandate courses in Western civilization, and lessen tenure protections. In a new survey conducted by the National Opinion Research Center at the University of Chicago, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression learned that one third of the 1,140 people surveyed were unable to name even one of the five freedoms protected by the First Amendment. And another one third could only name one, typically freedom of speech. Only 3% of those surveyed could name all five, which by the way are religion, speech, press, assembly, and the right to petition. Sadly, these findings are similar to those found in the Annenberg Constitution Day Civic Survey last summer. These results point to the continuing need for organizations like the UC National Center who are advancing a mission of democratic learning for all members of the higher education community. Now back to today's guests, Terry and Ellis. I am very excited to welcome both of you to Speech Matters. It's always special for me to be able to feature former fellows. Alice was part of the inaugural class of fellows way back in 2018-2019. His project focused on free speech in a post-truth world. Terry was a member of last year's class, and her work evaluated free speech and civic engagement on historically Black colleges and universities during the summer of 2020 and during the general election. Thank you both for joining us.
0: Well, it's my pleasure.
2: Thank you for having us. Both of your work centers around young people and democracy, and I'm hoping that we can start by having each of you share a little bit about this work. Ellis, your Renewing American Democracy project, and Terry, your ongoing research and engagement with students at HBCUs. Tell us, what are these projects about and what led you to them? And Terry, why don't you kick it off?
1: Well, okay, thank you. So my project evaluated the pandemic's impact on uh, free speech activism and civic engagement on HBCU campuses, HBCUs being historically black colleges and universities. And we wanted to explore um, what civic engagement and free speech looked like during a time of social and racial unrest, uh, given all the activities that were happening politically and socially in 2020. Leading up to the election. And so my work was looking at mobilization strategies, uh, some of the techniques that students were using in order to elevate their voices at a time of tension and contention. And I think it's important to do this because uh, student voices often uh, are diminished in times of, of, of strife. Often we elevate the voices of of more established organizations, more established individuals. But this was a a movement that resonated specifically with students at HBCUs. And so I wanted to find a way to study its impact or to evaluate how are students taking advantage or utilizing this moment in order to engage more effectively in the democratic process. This ties in a lot with my research interests, my personal interests in civic engagement, at HBCUs, but specifically at trying to support the articulation of voice among diverse student populations on college campuses.
2: And I'm just going to do a quick follow-up and, and ask you, Terry, um, what has your experience been um, hearing from students? What did you hear then? Are you hearing different things now? What are you seeing? Can you tell us a little bit about um, what things are like vis-a-vis engagement You know, in the last couple of years?
1: That's a really good question. So many of the students who were active in 2020 have now graduated, but they were very active then and they are active now as graduate students and as young professionals. So there was a carryover effect in terms of learning strategies for mobilization, for contacting and networking at a time when they were in classes, we were 100% remote uh, for many of the college campuses. So utilizing social networks and engagement strategies that rely more on technology. So there was a building of skills in that way. But what I've also found, they raised up a group of younger students, freshmen who are now seniors, who are now taking up the baton, but in some very interesting ways now that we're back on ground uh, and dealing with some of these interesting pieces of legislation that are impacting their their engagement. So the activism has continued. The venue has modified a little bit, given the student populations and the, the realities of society. But I'm finding that their commitment to engagement has remained consistent. That's a very generous word, Terry, uh, interesting
2: legislation. So we'll obviously come back to that. Um, but before we do that, Ellis, I'd love for you to talk about the origin of renewing American democracy and how that fits into um, you know, your greater work as an author and commentator.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been writing about issues of social justice, race, and also um, the press for decades. Um, I've done several books on all those subjects, and I'm also... Um, a former press critic for Time magazine. So 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 these are issues I've been sort of steeped in you know, for a long time. But actually, this, this project, in a way, grew out of my last three books, which have come out in the last three years. And sort of out of all those works, um, part of what I found myself thinking a lot about was the state of this American democracy. And what I also found myself thinking a lot about was the very low level of discourse that um, has surrounded that that discussions was the level of dishonesty that is uh, that seems to be built into that discussions was the polarization which seems um, just to be at epic proportions at this point point? Um, and thought it'd be interesting to start an organization that would try to elevate the conversation, but also bring young people and people of color into that conversation. You know, so I met with um, several people um, and three universities decided to partner with me on this. Uh, one is Long Island University, the University of Southern California, and deal at Northwestern. Uh, and so we basically started an organization, you know, and um, which I'm, you know, obviously the director of. And we've done a lot of things already. I mean, we had an essay contest. We had, a, we've had community and university events. We had a democracy dialogue, uh, uh, which uh, featured uh, Sonia Sotomayor, and we're planning others. But, but right now, we've sort of suspended a lot of those things because we're focusing on what I'm calling a talkback tour, which is a, a, a lecture conversation tour to universities across America, beginning actually at, at the UC system. Um, which we'll be be conducting over the next several months. And we will be, again, engaging students in this discussion of democracy and also getting from them a sense of what they feel is at stake and what they feel their role is in it.
2: And I know you're just kind of on the the beginning of this tour, but I was kind of going to ask you what I asked Terry, which is um, what kinds of things are you hearing um, from students on campuses? Maybe is there anything particularly surprising or...
0: What I'm finding is that there is a lot of anger. Um, there's a lot of anger at what young people see as a state of the democracy, at what state we are leaving it in for them at the older generation. Um, there's a lot of curiosity as to what's happening now. Um, and there is a lot of questioning about what they can do and, and how they can get involved. So, so finding all of those things, I I, I would... I would say the, the the big thing that I'm finding though is uh, is a lot of of discontent and anger um, at what's happening, you know, nationally and locally when it comes to the political discourse.
2: Thanks, and you know, I have to say for myself that you know I often feel overwhelmed by the number of very serious and structural threats to democracy you know that have existed that continue to exist and i'm wondering terry if you see that when you work with students and how you how you channel that energy and instead of to feeling um maybe more hopeless or paralyzed into action if you have any thoughts on that
1: i do uh, it is so it's really interesting that uh, these points that ellis made about students being very concerned about the state of democracy and trying to find different ways and different opportunities to to get involved, but also to shape it. Uh, What we found with many of the students is that there are so many structural challenges through legislation, through policy, that impact the quality of their engagement in terms of casting a ballot. And also many of our campuses are concerned about their relationship of the campus to elected officials, elected bodies, given the articulation of concern by the students, whether they're protesting, marching, uh, their strategies for holding elected officials accountable for their decisions and their participation in some of these uh, policies uh, that have either disenfranchised them or limited their access to the ballot. Some of what we've seen here uh, in Georgia and with many of the campuses that I've worked with through a fellowship that I have with All In Democracy Challenge is uh, that many of the campuses are dealing with the challenges of getting early voting on their campus. They may have had them historically, but it has become a real battle just to get early voting locations on college campuses. And that's in Georgia. That was an issue. No Fulton County or Atlanta metro area college campus was originally approved, even though we've, he ha- we have historically had early voting on our campuses, we didn't have them. But when we did get it, we got it for one day per campus for, with shortened hours And so, v- versus other locations. And the students are very concerned about what this means for their inclusion, what what does this communicate to them about their role and their place within the democracy? And so they have been organizing and strategizing, not just about registering people to vote, but how do we impact these policies or push for change in these policies, given that the state legislature meets in Georgia in January through March, how do we mobilize in ways that are not just responding to the system, but are impacting the system? And this is where we're starting to see a lot more energy among the students uh, during the midterm season or this, the non-general election years uh, among the students. And so I think this is a really interesting time about how they're thinking about democratic engagement and how they're choosing to raise their voices on the campus in terms of pushing uh, campus officials to support their uh, goals of having early voting locations on campus to get voter identification requirements changed. Many of the states have, as like Georgia has, where if students attend a private institution, your identification is not sufficient uh, for voting as a voter ID. Uh, And This is being rolled out and has been proposed in other state legislatures that have a, a significant minorities serving institution population or HBCU student population. It has a real impact on students' ability to go to the polls with legitimate ID and cast the ballot. And so there are, sev- there are several challenges. If you want me to tell you more, I can, because after the 2020 election, uh, we saw a rollout of a number of, of, of new policies that disenfranchise voters, but had a specific impact on students, but then also are just plain voter suppression.
2: Well, before we turn to Ellis, who I know also has thoughts on uh, legislation, especially legislation that deals with what is allowed to be taught in terms of, especially, you know, history, I kind of wanted to follow up about some of the suppression you were talking about. One of the things that struck me, Terry, when we talked earlier was when you talked about the campus that you work out um, being in more than one precinct um, and that even though students like live in community together and go to school together, they actually don't vote together. And you had said um, someone did that with a pen and not a ruler. Um, and I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about that specifically, especially, you know, um, with the backdrop of, you know, Black History Month and the things that we're supposed to be, you know, thinking about, you know, what does it mean that we're still talking about gerrymandering, um, in, you know, based on race?
1: Yes, this is a clear case of gerrymandering to draw specifically around locations in order to ensure that certain populations are separated from each other even though they're voting on they attend classes together they live uh, they eat in the cafeteria together it's which side of the street do you live on or your is your residential hall located that makes the difference in whether you vote 50 yards from our main campus or whether you have to walk 2 miles to the next voting location the next precinct you have to the students that are on the further side from campus uh, that need to walk two miles, they are passing two other voting locations to get to their polling site in order to cast the ballot, which leads to confusion among the students of, have I reached the correct location because I've never been in this neighborhood before, I've never gone to this location before, am I am I doing the right thing it, it, or should I just not participate? This is so far. And so it's it raises questions about intentionality are you is this are you specifically seeking to minimize the articulation of voice by the students through the casting of their ballot or uh, well that's all I can see it as and so um, <laughs> you know you're trying to make a you can't make an excuse for it that's what it is and so but I think it's really interesting because this is Atlanta Atlanta Georgia where we have such a significant African-American population Rep, we have significant representation in many of our elected bodies from city council to the mayor. But when we think about drawing these boundaries and our secretary of state's office, they have not necessarily reflected the demographics of the city of Atlanta. They have not necessarily represented the the desires of some of the residents and particularly the student populations within the metropolitan area. And so there's still this push between the desire of the masses and what we see entrenched in policy. And so even though there may be a desire by elected officials to support students, it boils down to you need to go and make the policy change so that we can redraw these boundaries so that they uh, provide us with a cohesive uh, student population that's voting at one location. And this is something we've been working on for several years, and uh, we haven't really gained as much traction or movement uh, with it. And, and the students have been working really hard this semester to, to understand uh, what the, what will it take, what type of support do they need in order to get that shift or to get that change, uh, and so it it's it's a real it's a real it's a real issue, and it's not just for our campus. We've seen this this reality for North Carolina A and T uh, University, uh, and so their campus was split. We see this reality for many other HBCUs where our campus populations, if they turn out and vote in numbers, can have a significant impact uh, on local elections. Often, our campuses are the difference, the number of students on our campus who reside in residential facilities who would vote in the precinct to have an impact on local elections, are the difference between whether a candidate wins or loses. So this is this is real in terms of trying to uh, discourage students from participating in the process because of possibly the impact they could have on voting outcomes. Thank you so much for elucidating that. I think it's important, especially for the listeners who
2: maybe live in bluer states where this isn't as much of an issue, um, to really understand a very specific example of how this works and what the impact is. Um, So I'm now going to turn to Ellis. And, you know, Ellis, you had already mentioned you've had this like decades-long career, um, you know, exploring and dissecting the role of race in American democracy. And one of the most concerning parts of recent state lawmaking has been the attempt to censor and control who teaches and how we teach history, especially racial history in schools, both K through 12 and um, at the university level. And I imagine that you have a lot of thoughts about this and I would love to hear you kind of share some of these including what you see as the impact um, of these kinds of laws on the ability and desire of young people to be active participants in, in democracy.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to understand, Michelle, as I'm sure you do, that a lot of what Terry was talking about and a lot of the issues we're dealing with are happening against the backdrop of a war, so-called war on wokeness. I mean, um, you know, a, a war on current conversations around gender and bisexuality, etc., and also a, a war on, the lack of a, of, a, of a better way of describing it, the racial transition occurring in America. I mean, there um, UCLA keeps a, a list of legislations that have been introduced, you know, specifically dealing with anti what's called critical race theory. Uh, and I guess that uh, as of date, there have been well over 500 measures introduced, uh, supposedly the combat critical race theory, when most people don't even teach critical race theory, especially outside of law school. So so this is clearly not aimed at critical race theory, which is something that the people passing this legislation don't understand and have no idea how to explain. It's really designed um, to suppress discussion, of the racial history of this country. Uh, it's, disc- it, it, it's really designed to enforce ignorance uh, on young people. Um, and it's couched in a discussion about protecting them from a political agenda or protecting them um, from being harmed somehow by having to learn the truth about America, which, which if you think about it, is really in itself a pretty disturbing thing, that's a pretty disturbing thing. I mean, a federal judge in Florida issued an injunction of, against the so-called stop StopWu hack um, in Florida. Yeah, and and he denounced it quite clearly as an attempt, as he put it, to muzzle professors. You know, in the name of freedom. I mean, this is this is dishonesty at its worst. You know, and it's something that is part of a larger agenda, having to do with a great fear of the changing demographics of this country. The same fear that led to, to the rise of, of Trumpism in the Republican Party and the same fear that fuels you know, the political aspirations of any number of candidates and most notably of the governor of uh, Florida, who has decided to make a career um, of opposing the teaching of black history and other things that, that are related to telling the truth. Uh, secondly, I think it's important to understand that even though the way this is being discussed is new, this is not new. Um, Iris wrote a piece for the for the uh, Los Angeles Times and one of the things that I point out is that Carter Woodson who was the father of uh, what, this, what was then called Negro History Week and now called you know Black History Month was fighting as early as the 1930s against uh, well, 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 the whole purpose, first of all, of Black History Week uh, was to, was to serve as an anecdote against the teaching of history, uh, which in most of the books of the time, um, Reconstruction was an awful thing because, because um, incapable people of color, incapable Negroes uh, went to legislators and, and ruined them. And the, and the KKK was a hero in this story that was the standard text you know in that time uh he writes about uh you know he wrote an article in the 1930s complaining about the effort in southern in, in certain southern states to uh repress the teaching um to blacks of the constitution because if they taught about the constitution some of these african americans might get the idea they actually had rights and that was the last thing um, that um, they wanted to teach. Um, there's been particular targeting of an incident, you know, from the eighteen from the eighteen fifties, eighteen fifty six. A young woman, Margaret Garner, you know, literally killed her daughter in order to keep her from being re enslaved. You know, she had escaped from Kentucky, had gone to Ohio. Uh, the the, the Fugitive Slave Act, which was passed in eighteen fifty. Basically forced the northern states to return people uh, who had escaped enslavement. She was one of those people, and decided quite literally to kill her daughter rather than see her back enslaved. slave. Um, Toni Morrison was so touched by this story that she wrote *Beloved*, which was based on or inspired, at least, you know, by that. So now you have uh, people became part of a of, of a gubernatorial race. But you have people trying to ban that book and other books supposedly traumatize young white people by telling them the truth. So you have a whole movement aimed at creating ignorance. Um, What does that mean for American society? It means something possibly devastating. You know, the Rand Corporation talked about, you had an analysis where it talked about how it's gonna reduce the the capacity of young people to do critical thinking. Um, Professors and, and teachers who are afraid to teach the truth are stifled from informing their young people, their students, of what they need to know. Uh, This is an absolute crisis, and the problem is that it's being driven from the highest levels of a political party, and it's being used as a political weapon uh, in the same way um, that the South, in the time after Reconstruction, used nonsense and and, uh, and similar, and basically, lies, Uh, to rewrite the Civil War, to rewrite the age of Reconstruction, and to make legitimate the suppression of entire groups of people. So this is not something that's just, you know, it's just a problem in a few areas and not something that's new. Uh, It's something, though, that has gotten worse because the nation, or at least some parts of the nation, are traumatized by the by this transition but at the same time you have another part of the other of nation that's energized by it so we're at a very very interesting time because you have some people who really think it's excited to to create a, a an actual multicultural multi-racial democracy and think that can only mean good things when you have some people you know, who think it's the most horrible thing that can happen and are trying to figure out some way to take us back to the 1920s or 1950s or or, or 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 the 18 you know 56 whatever um so i think that you know in terms of the of the context of how this is happening we risk running an entire population of young people who are being miseducated you know in the name of protecting the most frail among them.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate your putting that, you know, in context. And I might have to um, borrow your phrasing of a movement um, aimed at enforcing ignorance. Um, I think that is really very powerful, especially when I think of it in light of the work that the center aims to do, which is actually education. Um, you know, and and just going back to the fact that so many people don't know the basic facts um, about the history of this country, and even about the First Amendment and how it works. You know, there was a study that came out that talked about how you know the majority of the population can't even name one of the rights in the First Amendment. Um, And it's just, there's just so much work to do. And I think both of you point to the fact that the stakes could really not be higher, that this is not um, a new issue, but the iteration and the impact it can have are very devastating. And so I feel like we can't you know, have this conversation without talking about, you know, the 2024 election, um, you know, that's bearing down on us. You know, we're recording the day after the State of the Union. And I'm curious, and and Terry, you can kick us off. Um, Most of our listeners um, are folks in higher education or higher education associations. What can not just students, but faculty and administrators be doing between now and the election vis-a-vis democratic learning and engagement on campuses? And I know that's a broad question, so I'll let you take it where you want.
1: Okay, I think there are so many things that administrators and faculty can do to support students ranging from talking about the value of democratic inclusion and strategies for participation. Many of the students here go register to vote, but where? How? Many of these students are not familiar, especially freshmen. This may be their first election where they're able to actually cast a ballot for a president. And so where do you participate? How? How do they participate in the primary process? And not just keeping this information in social science courses but expanding it so that students can broadly across the campus regardless of their discipline can understand this information whether it's a module that's included in a course at the very beginning uh uh, where the students just have an opportunity to be exposed through it even if it's not embedded in the curriculum of the course or to have a town hall meetings and discussions where the campus is Campus presidents or leadership are saying we support student uh, civic engagement and voter participation. Uh, And so while many of these things appear to be symbolic, they can be very instrumental in providing that nudge of support for faculty, for students, for student organizations to get more involved and to feel that they have the support of their institution to do more. The other thing I would encourage faculty uh, and administrators to do is to have more of a, a, an open discussion, not just about the, the issues that are easy, that are comfortable, but some of the issues that the students are con- concerned about that may be a little sticky, uh, that might be a little bit uncomfortable in terms of helping them to parse out truth from fiction, fact from fiction, understand how is this how does this look in a policy, from a policy perspective, for our campus, for our demographic, versus looking at it just at the national level? Yes, there's a national impact or national reality, but what does it look like in our state? Because there are state-specific concerns that show up in initiatives and referenda and a variety of other ways that students are also, also need to be informed about as they cast ballots, as they are developing their, pers- their political perspective or their own identities. And so I think it's important for campuses to also do that kind of work. Um, I would also encourage many faculty and to serve as advisors for student organizations. Students need faculty support uh, as they are putting together programming, as they're reaching out to other organizations uh, in order to know, is this a good agreement? Is this someone that I should bring to campus? How do we cut through uh, institutional red tape in order to have high quality events that are supportive of the goal that we want to have, which may be you know nonpartisan uh, student voter engagement on our campus, and so I think it's important for faculty to commit to the students in a more intentional way by supporting their student organizations as advisors, and to also attend the student events as as a part of the audience uh, as a way of support, so that it's not just those in student life who are supporting these activities on the behalf of the students, but it's also the faculty and the administrators who are doing the work. Additionally, provide financial support for the work. It does not happen uh, without minimal cost, uh, whether it's to pie the pizza or to do the photocopies to get the, to pay a small honoraria uh, to individuals who may come to speak uh, for the, to the campus, but to provide some financial support, for the things that are, that matter for the campus. And many campuses have, in their campus mission, something about having a global thinker, a critical thinker, a civically engaged student body. It's what we say that we believe in. We invest in what we believe in. So invest some resources, either in full-time, part-time personnel, but also in programming, so that it can be more than just volunteer work, but something that is embedded and in institutionalized within the campus culture. And that is how you get longevity and growth with these types, with this type of programming. And that's that really comes from administrators and faculty.
2: Put your money where your mouth is, right? Yes, ma'am. All right, Ellis, how about you? What are things that um, you would suggest? Well, first
0: of all, let me, let me just endorse everything um, that Terry just said. And and, and, and secondly, and thirdly, I mean, I'm not a campus administrator, so I'm not about to start giving campus administrators specific advice you know, on what they can do. That's not my role. Uh, I'm also the front man for an organization uh, that is nonpartisan. Uh, so I'm not gonna speak about specific candidates you know, um, and what they are involved in, but I will say, that you don't have to be a genius to realize that the 2024 election is going to be one of the most important elections this country has ever had, um, because I because I think there are warring visions at stake of what democracy means, and I think uh, you know we are now in an era of divided government. Um, we know what that can mean. Um, And so I think it's essential that students uh, and other young people are one, aware of this, um, and two, do what they can, which may not be much, but it can be critically important. I mean, I talked earlier about the 520 some odd measures that are kicking around um, to, not to put too fine a point on it, to repress critical thinking. Students and young people ought to find out whether some of these are emerging from their legislators uh, and people whom they vote for or vote against. And if they are as alarmed by this trend as I am, they ought to make their feelings known about it. Um, there's also, you know, there's a tendency among, particularly among young people to say, well, well why vote? What does it matter? It's, it's you know, and I think that we need a movement among young people to combat that, you know, to make it clear that voting makes a huge difference and that who's in charge makes a huge difference and that if they really don't like what's happening now, uh, then it's their responsibility to try to do something about it. And I think I'll leave it at that.
2: I hear from both of you, you know, that that saying all politics are local. This idea that, you know, you may not be able to affect what's happening at a national level, but take a look at what's happening at your local school board, what's happening at your university, in your precinct, in your city, in your state. Um, And I think that's really important to remember. You know, it's it's hard to believe that we're getting towards the end of our conversation. I could uh, talk with both of you for much longer. Um, I think I just want to you know, we've covered so many things and I just want to give each of you a chance to sort of add anything um, that you'd like that you feel like you haven't had a chance to sort of share with our listeners, you know, vis-a-vis these large topics of democracy and racism and history and engagement and, um, you know, the rising generation of leaders. Um, Alice, do you want to go ahead?
0: Sure. I'm always wanting to talk about something. Um, what I will say, Michelle, is that I think we need a re-engagement uh, of young people. And, uh, and we need to also have a, a widespread understanding among all people uh, that critical thinking is important, um, that seeing things clearly you know, is important. Uh, we have a movement, as I said before, um, to enforce ignorance in this country. Um, and that movement is aided in a bit and embedded by certain parts of media, including social media. Uh, And it's become a badge of honor to be stupid in a certain way. I think that's absurd, but it's the reality in which we live. Um, And I think what young people need to understand is that part of the reality of being a responsible citizen and part of the reality of having critical judgment is having time to contemplate things and issues that make you uncomfortable. And to embrace that concept, to embrace the idea of letting reasonable ideas spread, even if they are ideas that you disagree with. So what I'm asking for, in in short, is that we reject this ideology of stupidity, this ideology of ignorance, this ideology of closing our eyes to inconvenient facts or things that we don't like, and embrace a real dedication uh, to truth and to honesty. Um, I think we've gotten away from that in many parts of our society. And as I said, I think it's become, you know, uh, it's hard to avoid when you have, you know, high political uh, officials routinely saying things that are ridiculous on their face um, and getting rewarded for that. Um, But I think we need to find some way to reverse that. And I think that begins with young people.
1: Thanks, Alice. Um, Terry, you have a final word. Yes. My final words would be to not get frustrated by, I think, overt attempts to suppress, to disenfranchise, but to look for opportunities, not to just be on the defensive, but to take offensive measures, offensive moves, to move in ways that protect the things that we value. Uh, I think it's important, you know, to recognize that, there is a struggle that is happening, but uh, I also think from a student perspective and a campus perspective, there are things that we can do to harness the resources we have to support students as they are becoming involved citizens, as they're practicing the, their democratic values that we think help to undergird society about voting, about volunteering, about um caring about others and communicating with others, things that should not be contested issues regardless of one's political foundation. But I think as institutions, we have an obligation to our students uh, to embed many of these values and these virtues uh, that we see as being just foundational to uh, being a good human being uh, in our campus cultures, in our activities. But then I also think that there is a need for a sense of courage. I think that so often we can see ourselves being concerned about what will be the repercussions or um, what will happen to me personally. But recognizing that in working together, we can refine strategy in ways that that diminish vulnerability, uh, but then provide opportunities for magnified impact. Uh, to support student voice student articulation and student engagement in voting I think it's uh, you know voting is one of the areas where I, I really care about because one of the things that I have found is that voting speaks to a level of self-efficacy I can make a difference in the world around me and even though there are steps to engagement uh, for vote toward voting that I can overcome those barriers in order to join a larger collective, in order to speak about what I value or what I think is important about the society around me. And I think that's important for us uh, to think about as we support students. And so my thing is for administrators to support students in a general general sense, but then more specifically through concrete uh, actions at the uh, institutional level, but for those who are in the general population who are not necessarily tied to an institution, Encourage more people to get involved and to care about the foundations of democracy, to be a part of um, positive conversations about democratic inclusion, about voter engagement, and, um, and to look for those opportunities to do more good and to elevate the greater good.
2: I have to say that I am um, both inspired uh, by both of you um, and the work that you have done and will continue to do. And I'm also very grateful to both of you for taking time out of all of the things that you um, do to be a guest and share with our listeners your uh, insights and thoughts. And you've left us with much to think about and also uh, many action items, which I appreciate. So I just want to thank you
0: again. Well, thank you, Michelle. It's been a real pleasure spending time with you and, and uh, also with you, Dr. Terry.
1: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to enjoy engaging in a conversation with you. I always learn so much uh, when I hear someone talk and share about history and, and contextualize it. And, and thank you, Michelle, for having us uh, on on the show. For those of you at a UC,
2: there are many events being hosted to continue discussion of these topics. These include a UCLA School of Music event, Music and Justice, being hosted Feb 26 to 28th, UC Law SF Center for Race, Immigration, Citizenship, and Equality Colloquium on Race, Citizenship, and Equality, March 2nd, featuring Berkeley Law Dean and Center Board Co-Chair Erwin Chemerinsky. If you haven't already looked through the panels and topics, for the Center's upcoming Speech Matters Conference, Fighting for Our Democratic Freedoms. I encourage you to register and learn more. Applications for our 2023-24 Class of Fellows are open until March 10th. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you next time.